I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. It was a beautiful February day in 1956. The temperature in Provence hovered just below 70 degrees. Far away, newspapers had reported wonky weather in the southern hemisphere during their winter several months earlier. In Brazil, for instance, it was astonishing to learn that Sao Paulo recorded their lowest ever temperature, 28.22 degrees Fahrenheit, in a place where the temperature almost never goes below 50. Lunchtime in Provence, though, was business as usual. Most people going about their day wouldn't have been able to imagine the destruction that would occur over the next 24 hours. A massive cold front was on its way from the North Pole, and this, coupled with an unusual set of pressure systems, was about to create a -a once-in-a-lifetime weather anomaly. On February 4, 1956, the Chicago Tribune reports a rising death toll across Europe as cold fronts from Russia caused major damage. The article paints a very real picture. Fresh blasts from Siberia swept towards Western Europe tonight to continue the cold wave that has cost more than 100 lives. From behind the Iron Curtain came hints of a disastrous fuel shortage in the continent's worst winter of the century. Poland's government called for talks on how to save coal and ordered bonuses to boost output from the mines. At least 102 persons are dead. Paris had its coldest February 2nd in 75 years when the temperature dropped to 5 above zero. Thames River frozen over for the first time in 10 years. In London, garbage has not been collected in 10 days. A helicopter flitted over lakes in Suffolk and freed swans trapped by ice. Two Britons swam in the sea at Yarmouth. They said it was warmer in the water than out of it. Frost ruined fields of spring flowers on the Riviera, and growers estimated their loss at $1.5 million. This cold system, and subsequent ones after it, would go on to slam Italy with snow. Roofs collapsed, animals starved, citrus orchards died, travelers were stranded, infrastructure broke down, and dozens of avalanches wreaked pure havoc. In some places along the Mediterranean, 
the massive snowdrifts didn't melt until June. What triggered the crazy weather? Some guess that the odd 1955 Southern Hemisphere winter and the freezing 1956 Northern Hemisphere temperatures were a mini-nuclear winter, resulting from the many nuclear tests that had taken place the year before. Others posit that the sun's unusual display of sunspots that year may have triggered the weather. Whatever the reason, that night in Provence, temperatures plunged to about 2 degrees. Those who could listen through their walls reported terrifying sounds from outdoors. The sound of orchards making crying noises as olive trees creaked and swelled. Then ominous snapping sounds as the branches burst open when their sap froze and expanded. (coughs) At the end of the freeze, two-thirds of Provençal olive trees were gone. Some of them had been standing over 800 years. Many of those who experienced the olive tree losses replanted with grapevines. Grapevines can give you a harvest in a few years, but olive trees would take 5 to 12 years to produce their first crop. This choice would steer the region towards a heavier wine-based economy. Farther north, wine regions were also hit hard by devastating frosts. European vineyards had just recovered from phylloxera, and they had set the course for their new directions. But the 1956 frosts changed all that. Cahors in particular was brought to its knees. Nearby in Bordeaux, the frost killed so many vines that subregions actually had the opportunity to reinvent themselves. In Pomerol, for instance, before the frost, Cabernet Franc was popular throughout the area. But after the frost, most people replanted with Merlot, possibly in the hopes of getting some higher yields after the failed 56 vintage. To give you an example, Petrus lost two-thirds of their vineyards. It took years for the right bank producers to recover from the 1956 losses. And when the region came out of it, Pomerol was quite different, namely in that Merlot made up more of the blends. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who has cast a heavy lot in Pomerol Merlot. Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures. 
they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Nineteen forty-seven View Chateau Sertan is one of the best wines I've ever had in my entire life. I've drunk a large number of astounding wines in my day, and frankly, it's hard to single out particular bottles. But I had the nineteen forty-seven VCC in two thousand four, and the way I figure it, if you're still clearly remembering a wine over a decade after you've had it, you're probably pretty fond of it. Anyway, I was talking to Alexander Tempo, who is in charge of VCC today, and I shared with him how much I love the nineteen forty-seven vintage of VCC. He told me that if that was the case, I should really try the 1945 because it's the better wine. That was good for me to know, but more I was impressed by how familiar he is with vintages that happened 40 years before he even started running the winery in 1985. And even that was 30 years ago. So he's pretty fluent with vintages that were 70 years old, which is pretty incredible and speaks to how it's different when your family has been running the same winery for generations. You get to try wines with your dad and your grandfather, wines that they made, and you get to do it regularly and with your family, which is a different kind of connection than anyone else can really kind of hope for ever. The Tenpo family has owned VCC since the early 1920s, and Alexander's dad was the winemaker from 1966 up until Alexander in 85. But even more astounding in terms of timeline is that this is a property that goes back to the 18th century as an estate. That's a long time back. In fact, this is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, of Pomerol wine properties. The Tempo family controls VCC today, but they also have a range of other wine interests, including a consultancy business with small producers in Bordeaux, a wine trading business called Wings, which is headed up by Alexander's cousin Francois, and which sells Bordeaux wines. And famously, the Tempo family also owns Le Pin, the Pomerol property which they purchased in 1979, and which is often cited as one of Bordeaux's most expensive wines in the secondary market, and just very hard to find as well. Contrasting with the long history of VCC, Le Pin is much more recent, and went from total obscurity to a huge amount of fame in the 1980s with a lot of demand. Here is Francois Tempo describing that shift in the market for Le Pin back at the same time that he was living and working in the United States. Oh, it was uh, in 1981, so for me it was a great opportunity because uh, it was the uh, booming city at that time, and I had the opportunity to sell wines and cheeses. I had a cheese shop with an English guy, and uh, we... Well, different world for Different you, huh? world, yes. And uh, for me, uh, it's exactly the, the time when I make my, my connection, which uh, I use all those f- friends today, you know, can be journalists or wine distributors, for me, was uh, really the start of my business, you know, especially in the U.S. For instance, uh, the fact I was in Houston, Texas, when the family uh, bought uh, Le Pin in 1979, and uh, the first vintage which I really imported was the 1981. And uh, at that time, nobody wanted Le Pin because uh, my uncles wanted it was such a small quantity that they decided to sell the wine at the same price than Vichato Certain. And you have to think at that time, 80s people, you know, the wine is not like it is today. And uh, 
why you buy uh, an unknown Pomerol, same price than the famous uh, Vichato Certain. So it was kind of insane. So, But not for long, right? Cause not for long, but it took a while. I bought uh, one third of the crop and imported here, uh, vintage 1981, and sold to uh, different uh, retailers all over the, the countries. And they just saw my, my face and my name and trust me. They didn't see the bottle, they didn't see the label, they didn't taste the wine. Just get the price. Say, well, the price is pretty expensive, but, you know, can have five cases. Why not, you know? And then um, it just happened that I knew the one journalist of the Washington Post at that time. Bob Thompson was a good friend of mine. And they invited me for a weekend. And so uh, and just received by uh, shipment the... Uh, Le Pain 1981, so I just put the bottle in my luggage and flew to Washington, D.C., and uh, he said, oh, I have tonight some friends for dinner. And uh, one of them, who was his friend, lawyer, his name is, was Robert Parker. Then uh, he tested that, he didn't know at all. He asked me, where can I find this wine? I told him, oh, you can find in uh, Washington, D.C. at Ed Sands, uh, New York in Park Avenue, and so on, different places. So then he started to buy some bottles and... Uh, and you wrote about, and uh, the rest is... Uh, Became quite a big thing. Yes, yes. It really, And uh, I have to say that in 81, Le Pain was really the first great vintage of Le Pain. And uh, then came, the, of course, the, the 82, which gave a 100 point, and then uh, the rest was... Because um, I think a lot of times people don't think of 81 as a strong vintage in general. Do you think it surprised them, the quality of the wine for the vintage? Do you think that was part of the surprise? Yes, also, because the style of the wine was really quite uh, unique. The silkiness, uh, extremely lush, seducive, exotic. So it was very easy for especially American palate, you know, say, wow, what is this? You know, that's a big deal. I mean, we'll love it. And I think I got this because the fact I was not in Bordeaux, I was abroad. I tasted the wine here. As a matter of fact, I first tasted the 81 Le Pain with the, the ex-sommelier of La Tour d'Argent who just moved on in Houston, so it just happened that we shared the bottle and we drank the bottle. I said, wow, this is good. And so I bought it. And uh, so the fact to be outside of your own land, you know, you have a, give you a, another perspective. I was, of course, not, I have no clue that this one will become an icon, you know, because, you know, it was, it it was tough to sell. And uh, one of the journalists in Houston, as a matter of fact, Houston Chronicle, just uh, wrote that, yes, this Le Pain, it's okay for a generic palm roll. So he was not so... Anyway, but then the wine sold very well. Till today. Since, yeah, oh, yes, of course. Now it's a... Do you think it's a wine that was really driven by the United States market, or was there other markets that were equally or more interested? The U.S. market was leader. And then, of course, the English market came. The fact that Parker started to write about, and, uh, and then after some others came after that. And uh, so created a big deal, you know. And what about the market for Vieux Chateau Sertan? Is that a different market than Le Pain? Yes. Vieux Chateau Sertan at that time was a classic, very uh, respected name. And uh, we are not, obviously, Alexandre will talk about, of course, more deeply, but um, we have uh, it was such a big difference today work uh, compared to his father's work, for instance. It's, uh, I would say, days and night. <laughs> it's not... Uh, not at all the same thing. So for Francois Tampeau, the winemaking at VCC has definitely changed since his cousin Alexander took over that property and the winemaking there in 1985. 
But how has it changed? I asked Alexander to clarify which winemaking changes have gone on since he started. One thing is that we use not recipes, but methods. That's the, the most important. That's a very, And we are talking about quality of wine and not at all about prices of the wine. So I'm living every day in a true luxury. We are surrounded by false luxury everywhere, cars, um, watches and everything. But I've, I'm very lucky. Every day when I open my shutters, I'm right immersed in the vineyard. So I'm in front of a vineyard, which is made up with the different plots from uh, the youngest I were planted in 2010 and the oldest in 1932, for example. So the, the aim is to make the best wine as possible for a given year. And that is a glass of wine of VCC is always what is the link, the closer link to what nature gives a certain year. So the method used at VCC they are changing every day. We are immersed in the vineyard, so we have to decide one day after the other, the nose in the underbar, which will be the best for the next day, the next week. It's always custom-made. And what is a good wine? That's the, the most important. A good wine is the contrary of a simple wine. Complexity is the question. So the method you use to have this kind of complexity, given by the soil, given by different varieties, given by different kind of refraction of the soil, etc., and methods used. So uh, altogether, the aim is to have the wine the more complex as possible in a way that you have finesse, complexity, length, and all the rest. And you have this for different plots. You can have plots prone to be better in tannin, for example, and plots better for perfume, and the other ones, other variety, much better for length, for example, for Capron. Especially the landscape, the, the vineyard around is like a patchwork of different specificities. So each of those parcels probably demands a little bit of a different kind of management. The 14 hectares of vineyard of VCC and the two and a half hectares of Le Pin are all divided for VCC in 23 different plots. And now we are looking inside the different plots with the GPS system and all the new methods given by the new generation to have an idea of the production of each different plant. So for 2015, it was the real first time we decided to stop the pickers with a GPS system in hand. What happened? That the precision is much higher. As a result, the best batches are even better, and the low-quality ones are even worse. The difference between the batches is much more important. So you can, it's like a pyramid, and the, the quality of the wine is much better now than it used to be. Of course, that's the, the, the big, big lesson for that. And when did you arrive at VCC? I took over the property when my father died. It was at the end of 85. It's 30 years ago. It's 2015 is my 30 years vintage there. That's quite a long time. I mean, a long in, time, in yes, winemaker yes. terms, it's a while. And you probably have a lot of experience of different vintages from also before your career and then obviously with your career. Yeah, because I remember tasting we made with my father in 1972 about five different 1950s. And it was a blind tasting. And my father said, don't forget the price of the wines. Just see through the wine the real value of them. It was VCC, of course. Certain de Mai, just behind. Uh, Petrus, La Fleur, and Cheval Blanc. And at the end of the tasting, which one was the best? At the low price. It was Certain de Mai was the best, 1950. Second, I have to tell, confess that, it was VCC and then all the rest. But you see, a tasting of 1950 in 72 is, is exactly as if we made the same blind tasting for 1986 for today, for example. So it's not so far. And for me, it remains that 1950 is the example to do for good wine. It's 2010, for example. For you, the 1950 and the 2010 have a similarity. Exactly. They are, they are twins. 
as 2009 is the twin with 1948. 1948 is glass of silk, and 2009 is a glass of silk too. 2010, shortly speaking, is a glass of velvet. In 1950, it's a glass of velvet. Yeah. And what other twins do you see? Difficult to say. For example, 2014, what I was asked a long time, and I, no, I have no comparison at all. 2014 is itself. 2014 is great, which will be, I think, the same for 2015. The 2015 is, in a way, 2009, but with very good cap franc, which is not the case for 2009. 2009, the cap franc were stuck by an excess of drought. So you have been, since your father's time, tasting a number of different properties on the right bank and in Pomerol. And how would you say that your understanding of VCC compares to those? How do you think the VCC expression compares or contrasts with the neighbors? It's a good question, in a way, that I still always manage to make the wine at VCC with the aim to make the wine closer to what nature gives. Technology behind the scenes at VCC is the highest you can expect, but it is always in case of. So if you don't have any technology in your cellar, the margin of security between wine and vinegar is very thick. If you have a big technology behind the scenes, you can diminish, you can diminish, and, and also in the opposite, if you use technology to make a wine, natural wine, you rub the character, you rub the signature, you rub the soul of the wine. So the wine made from the beginning, when I started VCC until now, is the more natural you can expect, but with a very, very narrow thickness of security. So in that way, VCC is always, in blind tasting, you can recognize it very easily, because it has its own character, its own signature. It's Cap Franc, it's, it is mainly Cap Franc, a sign with and in the blind tasting, Petrus, for example, is 100% mellow or something like this. It's quite easy to find out. You see, two-thirds, one-third is very easy. Cheval Blanc also is... You see, all the, the different properties at, at this standard of quality are more and more recognized. You can recognize them. Recognize them, yes, more and more easily. And sometimes people say that there's more Cabernet Franc at Cheval Blanc because of the kind of soil. Do you find that to be true at VCC too, that the, the soil is determining the grape? Yes, but we have to be very modest with Cabernet Franc. It can be the best and the worst. So Cabernet Franc is killed by an excess of warmth, of heat. It was nothing in 2009, for example, 2010 also. Both of them were our mellow years. But at the opposite side, it's excellent in very dry conditions. The last reference for good Cabernet Franc year is 2011. I remember three weeks, one month before the harvest, we were amazed by the vineyard is still green. It didn't have any drop of rain during three months almost. And this year, especially, very good for Capron. Capron is stuck by an excess of, of heat, but excellent with late dry season. But which is funny is to realize that in 2015, we have excellent Merlots and also very good Cabernet Franc because global warming helped us to have a very, very good late season in which helped Cabernet Franc to ripe until the end. So the expression of Cabernet Franc oh. is actually sometimes different now because of global warming, or at least the possibility is there. The global warming helps us till now, but it has to stop at the right level now, not go further. It will be uh, concerning. It is concerning. Uh, you see, Cap Franc in the blend is quite shy variety, but it gives to the blend the cashmere side of the wine, and overall, the length. The Merlot gives you the base of the wine, it's the structure, the tannins, the color. You, and you built uh, your wine with some complexity, some length with Cabernet Franc, and you put the, the key on, of the blend with a little amount of Cabernet Franc 
which is, as my analogists used to say, it's the line of lemon juice on a turboot. Because lemon juice itself is quite simple, turboot itself is quite simple, but the line of lemon juice on turboot is much better. And how do you see the actual site of VCC? I mean, how should I understand the vineyard as a whole? The vineyard of VCC is in the middle of the plateau of Pomeroy. Well, it's not so high, so it's quite flat. Uh, 33 meters high. And then is one piece. But three kinds of soil, in fact. One mainly clay soil with all merlots. Uh, the other one is clay and gravel, capron. And then the other one is only mainly gravelly soil. It's only the 5% Cabernet Sauvignon we had. And Cabernet Sauvignon are just in front of Le Pain. Le Pain at the opposite, if I may say, Le Pain is the opposite of Petrus, if you want, in a way of the soil are opposite. Petrus is mainly clay soils, Le Pain is mainly gravel, deep gravel. And, and Le Pain has its own Merlot, in fact, where normally a normal Pomeran would plant some Cabernet Sauvignon. That's the specificity of Le Pain. Really. That's interesting because they're so often compared, I think because they're so expensive, both. That that's a comparison that's made a lot, Le Pen and exactly. Petrus, but, but you're saying the raw materials are actually very but, different. But in a glass of wine, Petrus and Le Pen are completely opposite. Le Pen is Burgundian style, which means it's lighter and complex. Petrus is a bit slightly bigger. It's more a uh, velvet style for Petrus, it's more silky or maybe more Burgundian style for Le Pen. And so what were some of the standout moments that you had at VCC? Were there vintages that were challenging that you learned from? Were there vintages where you felt you had been particularly successful? What were some of the real things that you remember looking back? To tell you the truth, I'm I'm learning every day. Uh, A tricky year or difficult year is much more interesting for me to do. You must be stupid or silly to miss uh, 2010, for example. Or everything is given by nature. But even if I say that, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, even for 2010, but no problem. Uh, an excellent year, which is quite challenging, and at the end, my God, so it's so good. For me, 2006, for example, which is normal average year, but a good, because we, we take a lot of risks at the time. Remember, that, for example, 2006, we had, just in, right in the middle of the picking, we had two storms, one 40 millimeters, and the second one, 12 hours after, of uh, 60 millimeters, so 100 millimeters of water right in the middle of the, the picking for the Merlots. So what can you do? It was like a swimming pool. Everywhere. And the risk is the outbreak of rot, of course, but by dilution. So a young guy with no experience would double the team of workers and go straight in the vineyard and pick everything uh, before the dilution and, and rot expected. But because of the weather conditions and the weather forecast, which are now more and more precise, which help a lot for quality, uh, it was just an accident, just uh, the two storms. And the next week was much better and without any rain. So I tried to jump from day until 10 days later. So, of course, we had an outbreak of rot, but we have now a sorting table of everything by hand. We sort the bunches in the vineyard and the berries in the cellar. So, at the end, we lost, of course, one-fourth of the yield, but the result in the glass is much better because all the different varieties were picked at the right moment, at the optimum ripeness. It was a difficult vintage that you're proud of the quality of. Yes, but because it belongs to one human decision. Um, an example, in 2014, we, we stopped four times, according to the weather forecast. The berries of 2015 were too young, too clean, were not old enough. You see, maturity is a kind of degenerescence. Huh? So the skins were too young. We need the fall coming. We need to, some thickness of the, the skins. Um, you want more thickness than the skins? No, no, less. Less, less, less. less. We, we had the lack of color, lack of tannins. So like the extractability was too low. So we had to delay the things. And there, to have some rain, some storms. And so we stopped because the weather forecast, at the opposite of normal, we, we stopped expecting the rain 
and then we restart after the rain. We try to delay the things to have a good maturity of the skins because of the rain expected, which works very well. And what about the addition of the GPS? I mean, what exactly does that allow you to do? To improve quality, uh, you need more precision. During my grandfather's time, for example, the, the vineyard was considered only by the varieties. During my father's time, inside the varieties, they picked the, the varieties by age. At my time, we decided to go a bit further, and inside the same plot at the same age, we separated the kind of soil, the kind of topsoil. And then afterward, before, now it's about 8 to 10 years ago, I tried to fly over the vineyard before the three days before the picking and make some photographs from above. My son did it, and I just part of it. And then we separate the greener parts from the less green parts. The greener the plant is, the more vigorous the plant is, and the less good is the wine, in fact. Uh, the more vegetal, uh, the risk is the vegetal. So next step is to, to be a bit more precise, and you use GPS. But combined with computers, which put all together uh, some analysis of the soil, some parameters of refraction, we made film of a canopy with infrared system, and so you can see exactly uh, during a certain period of year uh, the differences of the greenness of canopy, and so on and so on. And have you done a lot of canopy work in general? Yes, of course. And I think with the global warming, we will go back to uh, ancient methods. The deleafing, for example, and uh, the height of the canopy will be reduced because the alcohol is too high now. Is that clonal as well? The clonal and massal selection, they are both of them they have their own positive thing. But for me, the clonal selection is much higher in the quality itself, because it, it gives a more homogeneity of the plot. So it is ripe at the same moment. That's the main question. If you have a, a massal selection complexity given by each different plant can be combined in a positive way, but it's much more challenging, much more. And it depends on the year. You can have the year for massal selection, which is much better for them, and another year more difficult for the case for 2008, the complexity uh, coming through 2008 is given by the massal selections. And do you see other differences between your father's generation and your grandfather's generation and the methods that were being used and then what's happening for you now? I think the comfort of working is a big, big positive thing for the result at the end. Uh, during my grandfather era, it was quite difficult, very hard work. They use horses, for example. And it's not because the horses was in the vineyard that the wine was better. It was uh, very hard to work at that time. I remember when I took over the property, I, we had to fight against the worker to put them on the tractor. And now I have to fight to put them out of the tractor because it is AC system and radio and all those things. But it's much more easy now. And the, the work itself is much better, much better. No, everything is, is improved. The keyword is optimization in the field and in the cellar is selection 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 so how is it varied now in the cellar the methods itself in the cellar hasn't changed in a global meaning but one example the temperature of for the fermenting process is much lower than it used to be we, we don't use less and less air to aerate during the process of fermenting just to prevent an excess of oxidization we prefer to have a more reduced wine as a more oxidized that's a new method, new way of, uh, of thinking. You think the reduction showcases the flavors nicely? Exactly. That's interesting. I don't hear a lot of people say that. Because during the maturation process in, in cask, the, the presence of oxygen is quite high now. So, and with alcohol, I think the wine is more stable, but it's very sensitive to air. So it's like a protective layer. 
that it has while it's in cast if it starts reductive. Exactly, and you use less uh, sulfur. So it allows you to use less sulfur if it's reductive. I'm not sure, but when I say that, we will see that in the next step. It's a direction you're thinking about moving in. Yeah. As the method used for more natural process in the vignette and in the cellar is very, very positive. What are you fermenting in? Wooden tanks. And that's somewhat unusual, right? I mean, I think a lot of people have gone to steel at some point. Yes, but you see, it's not because of the, the vat is in wood or in stainless steel or in concrete that the wine is better or less good. The wood tanks is better in a way that is very insulated. So you can have for cold weather, cold temperature is very, very useful. It's the opposite for a stainless steel vat, for example, which is uh, it loses calories very quickly. So you have to bring them some calories, some heat. And uh, the more neutral one is the concrete one. And for me, I think the concrete vats are the best. But they're not pretty. So you ferment it in wood, and then the mallow happens in barrel? In the vats, you have the, what you say, the must. The must is the juice, the pips, the pulp, and the skins. So it ferments, and then after one week, one week and a half, you have the wine, the simple wine is made, and we rack after three weeks of vatting. And then uh, the press wine, the first press wine is put immediately in a racking wine from the vat itself. And the second press is kept a bit beside. We decide to blend it with the wine afterward because we need to wait a bit. It does seem like press wine is part of the style of VCC. Like when I taste it, I think, oh, this has some press wine inclusion. Always. The two-thirds of the press is, is in there, yeah. It's a kind of, uh, of style, kind of um, decision. And uh, afterward, the, the wine is set in a, in a cask during for 18 to 22 months, depends on the year. And then we clarify the wine with white of eggs. And, uh, and Which, then, is that still common? And do a lot of people still do that? I think it's still common, but um, they can use it in stainless steel vats, for example. You can do it. And then we whip the wine in, in the bottle on the next May of the second year, the May in the second year. So you've controlled the fermentation to make it lower, so the fermentation is taking longer than it may have in the past. The length, the duration of the fermenting process is essentially, for me, is linked to the thickness of the wine. The lighter the wine is, the more flash is the fermenting process. The thicker the wine is, the longer it is. And you're looking for a bit of a thicker style? Uh, it's given by nature. Right. What about the length of mallow? Length of mallow, or one week, one week and a half, or for the feminine process. And cap front, one week. Cabernet Sauvignon, same as mallow. In fact, the Cabernet Sauvignon in the left bank has exactly the same role as the mallow in the right bank. It's the base of the wine in the left bank, and for Cabernet Sauvignon for the left bank, and mallow for the right bank. But for us, Cabernet Sauvignon right bank is, as I said to you, the yarging part of the cake is the key of a blend. And it was used for us at VCC as the ability of the wine to for aging. Capsomino give you more ability of wine to age, which is not sure. And do those grape varieties show immediately their character in barrel, or does it take a while? Immediately, even in a, in a mass itself, before the fermenting process. A berry of Merlot is very good to eat, to taste. And a, a berry of Cabernet Franc is medium, and Cabernet Sauvignon it has no taste compared with the Merlot berry. Cabernet Sauvignon is um, very surprising because the Cabernet Sauvignon expresses itself, its own character, sapidity, after the fermenting process. It seems to be a bit fade as a berry. Fade, pale, pale taste. Un goût simple, simple taste. Very, very simple. Because I've experienced that, actually. I've had Cabernet Sauvignon, mm -hmm. in, uh, and I've thought, oh, maybe it's not a good vineyard. But it doesn't seem that complex as a, no, as a, no, no. a grape. 
it is we transform the taste of Cabernet Sauvignon is a fermenting process. Transform it and all the the first smell, the first taste with the Cabernet Sauvignon you just fermented is like metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. At what point do you blend the different barrels together? How long do they stay apart? They stay apart the entire winter. And we manage the decision of the blending at the end of February, beginning of March. We have, we have 16 different batches, 16 different origins, about eight Merlots, four Cap Franc, and, and the rest Cabernet Sauvignon. And then we decide to make the first wine to be the best wine as possible for the next 10 years. And then uh, this is the first step, the second step, in between the different batches, which are not obviously first wine, they put all together, and we see what's going on. And then some of them can be second wine, some of them can be reintroduced in the first wine. And then at the third step, we see which is the potential first wine, which is eight times after 10, after tasting, something wrong in it. In it. And you have to tune the things from 2 to 3% of one component to have the famous balance, which is the key of a balance. And when did you introduce the second wine? I started in 85 and I started with second wine, with the crop thinning and also reducing the yield of the property. So immediately you had some ideas about some changes you wanted to yes, make. Yes, yes, yes. And those were influenced by some of the historical examples of VCC that you had tasted? Yes. 61, for example, is the, the example of the crop thinning. Because they had Easter uh, 61, they had uh, the spring frost. It reduced by 30% the yield, and the result in the glass it was much better than the previous year, which was uh, 60 and 62, by the way, was a big, big yield because the plant it accumulates a lot of reserves and restart a new uh, yield, twice normal yield. So that's why 262 is a good wine, but diluted by an excessive yield. And what do you see forward? What is the future path for VCC in terms of continuing evolution, meeting the conditions? As I said to you, I think it's optimization, the keyword, so there's no end. Uh, I do hope so. That's the interesting of my, the kind of job I do. And which I, I remember when I started, the, the people said, oh my God, they, they made such a good wine in the, in the 30s or in the 40s and 50s. Or and the wine was, was much better before now. That's not a very nice thing to say, is it? Yes. Did and, that piss you off? Did you get mad about that? Yeah. And, and, uh, and to tell you the truth, the, the wines now are much better than they used to, do, they, to, be. They used to be. Of course, of course. If I had to, uh, I compare 2010 with 1950. Even today, I think if I had to to remake a 1950, for example, it would be much better than right? that used to be. Yes. With those raw materials. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So what's the origin of the pink capsule for VCC? Because it's rather unusual. Like on the bottle, it's pink. Yes. This is my grandfather's decision in 1924 when it started there. He was quite, uh, my grandfather was uh, with, we say in French, original. Uh, and so during the 20s, pink color was very fashionable. It was the shocking pink in Paris with Schiaparelli. And so he, he dared to put some pink color on the capsule. And then at the end, he was, uh, as a result, when the bottle is lying, you can see exactly where VCC is. But it, it was only for me because my grandfather was about a bit eccentric. To be a little unique in the market. Exactly. It's a bit shocking. Also, you know. And you saw the origins of Le Pen. How is it different than VCC? Uh, first of all, Le Pen is a, a mostly a gravity soil. That's the most important. And then uh, Le Pen is 100% Merlot, which is different from VCC. And also Le Pen is a patchwork of different age of plant. plant 
and also Le Pain at the end. In a glass of Le Pain, it's also a selection. All the production is not Le Pain. There is an unofficial second wine of Le Pain. Oh, there's a second wine for Le Pain. So you yes, taste through the barrels and you say this ex- is... Ex- exactly, exactly. Yes. The Le Pain is always a selection with the best cask of Le Pain made in a certain year. But the second wine is made up with the three years of second wine all put together. So it's a blend of three different vintages. Vintages, man. That maybe uh, give what the previous vintage had not, the characteristics. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the specificity of Le Pain is mainly the, the tiny, tiny vineyard, very small, and I can put a name on each different plant. And uh, you see, I'm working a very, very high standard vineyard. The answer of the vineyard is like uh, a horse, uh, a racehorse. And the answer is very, very rapid, very, very fast. And for Le Pain itself, it's so tiny, so small, there's no room for mistake, uh, if I may say. So it's quite challenging. And the success of Le Pain is the kind of, of wine produced at Le Pain is so soft, so easy to reach in one, one hand, and in the other hand, very complex. You have the, both faces of the kind of wine. So Le Pain, for me, is condemned to stay small. If he increases size, he will lose his own specificity. It's exactly if you put with your thumb a stamp on the map of Pomeroy, just below, the, under the, the stamp, you have the famous little uh, plot of uh, deep gravel, and combined with a water table quite high during the winter time. So all everything combined, you have a very specificity, which at the end, consider Le Pain for me as a part of a blend kept separate. Le Pain is a pure Merlot on gravelly soil with associated with this very high water table, very specific, and then it can be considered as a part of a blend kept separate. So in many ways, Le Pen is sort of a flip side of VCC. It's sort of like the opposite. Yeah, complementary. Le Pen became famous quite rapidly, whereas VCC had a reputation that had been established for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Did the sense of it being something kind of new change the perception? Because, you know, I think... With VCC, you said it's annoying to you when people say that it used to be better, but that probably didn't happen with Le Pen. There was probably no such kind of conversation. So I wonder if that affected how you saw the wines. No, no, it doesn't affect me at all. Because I consider the wine as wine. With all which is behind it, it doesn't matter for me. You see, you are surrounded by a lot of uh, um, cynicism. And and cynicism is, uh, the definition is knowing the price of everything and the real value of nothing. And I I try to stay in front of a vine of of Le Pain, of VCC, and I know them, they are very valuable, and I'm very lucky to work for them. So uh, for me, it's it's wine only, and the real, true value. That's the most important thing. What do you think that is for Le Pain? If I were to understand the true value of it, because the valuation in a market is... Um, it was to tell you the truth. It was quite long for me to admit that the pen was a very high quality wine. I got that sense. Yeah, that was the sense I got. Exactly. And yeah. at the end, and especially for '98, for example, quite long. And when I tasted '98 by cask, one of them was very, very, very good. It was the wine of uh, unexpected. Everything was there. It was a Burgundy style. And um, my God, what a wine! But it disappeared because it was bland, of course. And I had some this kind of experience afterward, 2001, excellent wine. A big bag, 1986, excellent. Le Pain can match 
uh, certain years, not every year, but certain years can be outstanding, can be stunning for me uh, and my own taste. Did your measuring standards have to change a little bit coming from the lens of VCC? Did you have to think about it differently? I mean, did you find that part of it growing on you is that you embraced it more? Uh, oh, certainly. Yeah. But it's difficult to admit, but I think, yes, everything is, uh, is improving. Everything counts. No? One of the things that Le Pen is very famous for is malolactic and barrel. Mm. Right? I mean, I think that's one of the things that was sort of noted early on. Yes, but it was said. But to tell you the truth also, is just because we didn't have enough room to put the wine in a cask, in a vat, to make the malolactic process. So the wine was racked from the vat to the cask, and by the way, the malolactic process was made in a cask. So like they do in Burgundy, but that wasn't common in Bordeaux. No, but during the 50s, for example, even at VCC, uh, because of the big yield they had at the time, or during the 60s, turnover in, in the bathroom um, was much faster. So sometimes they decide to release the wine from the vat after the end, largely before the fermenting process, and refill it. And of course, the wine was set in the cask and malotic was made in the cask at the time. So for you, it was a situation of necessity. Yeah, exactly. It's more, much more necessary than, than proposed. Yeah. But then how did it end up that's different than doing it not in cask? Like, uh, what does that mean? For the very first year, it can change. But at the end of the first year, for a wine made, which has made his malolactic process in the vat or in a cask, you don't see the difference after one year. So ultimately, they hit the same spot exactly, with time. Same. Exactly. But in certain way, it can show a sample for the implementer testing a bit more attractive if you made it in a, in a malolactic process in the cask. Some people wrote about it, and then that became a very standard practice, right? Of course, yes, yes. A lot of people now, the, the, the method is used for a lot, lot of different uh, of properties, yes, to do it in the cask malolactic process. So when you approach a bottle of Le Pen and a bottle of VCC, when do you like to approach them? What is the aging curve that appeals to you? You said that you sort of make VCC for to be wonderful for ten years, but when does that mean you open it at ten years, or when do you start to pull the corks? Eight to ten years is necessary for VCC to reach the a normal approach. That's the beginning. Yes, really. yes, yes. And for Le Pen, I, I think not so far the same. So you can actually handle them similarly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You see, the aging ability is given by the, the amount of tannins present in the wine. And you can have a pure Merlot or a blend Merlot Capron at the same level of tannin. The aging and the maturation uh, of the wine is exactly the same as it is Merlot, pure Merlot or a blend wine. doesn't matter. How multifaceted is Merlot on different sites? I mean, how many expressions could there be? Is it a grape like Riesling that really expresses the site very differently each time? Or is it a little more limited? Or is it in between those two things? A little bit limited. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. has certain expressions. Oh, yeah, exactly. A so, handful, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. Riesling is, can be very versatile, different. Huh? And you can guess before you open the bottle uh, what kind of perfume or aroma of parameters you have in your glass. It's always surprising, Riesling. And for Merlot, no, no, it's always. Uh, it's, Merlot is Merlot. Uh, and Capron is Capron. Sauvignon also. Has the experience of making Le Pen affected how you view VCC? Have you brought back different eyes from that experience? I think it's the opposite. VCC brought a lot of back to Le Pen. And going forward, yes. what would make you happy at each property? What would be a delight? That the next generation 
make the same kind of wine. It doesn't be influenced by the taste of different fashion or and, and keep going in the right track and be obsessed by quality. Alexander Tempo and Francois Tempo have kept going inside the family Tempo on the right bank of Bordeaux with wonderful wines on multiple generations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Merci. Alexander Tempo and Francois Tempo of Vieux Chateau Sertan and also La Pan and also Wings. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.